Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 11. Book of Acts chapter 11. I'm going to pull a slide up here uh, if in just a moment. Today we are going to talk about a church that is very significant in the book of Acts and therefore very significant for all of us in all of church history. Uh, it's the church in Antioch, and um, I, want, I want to try to show you where this is. So, uh, if you can think of Jerusalem as being uh, sort of south here on the, on the map. Oh, here, I, you know what? I'm going to try something new. I got a, do you remember pen lasers? This is not going to be a 1990s PowerPoint, but I'm just going to show you here. Uh, so, as, you, as we read this passage, uh, we got Jerusalem right here. And then about a couple hundred, 250 miles north or so, you've got Antioch in Syria. This, this is going to be a very important church in the book of Acts. You can see Paul, his hometown, Tarsus. And as we read this passage, we're going to be hearing about a number of Christians from Cyrene. Do you remember Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross? So he's from uh, this North African country of Cyrene. But there are some people here who came from Cyrene to Jerusalem for Pentecost and were likely converted there, and they stayed in Jerusalem and later headed north. There's also some Christians from this island called Cyprus that also came to Jerusalem for the feast. And what, what we're going to see is uh, in this passage, you remember the stoning of Stephen back in chapter 7? The immediate result of that, and Luke's about to refer back to that, is that the, the Christians were scattered. Remember? It's just scattered everywhere. And what we're going to see is that a number of Christians from the, that had moved to Jerusalem go north, and they end up in Antioch. And this church here in Syrian Antioch, right here, uh, is very significant because there's more than one Antioch in the book of Acts, just to confuse you. The one in Syria, this one, is the really significant one because... This becomes the Apostle Paul's home church. And this becomes the church that is the first real church that is full of Jews and Gentiles together. I mean, we're talking enormous mixture of, of diverse ethnic backgrounds in the church in Antioch, and they become home base for all of Paul's infamous, famous uh, missionary journeys. So, pa Paul is, is commissioned by the church in Syrian Antioch, and that is where he is sent on his first missionary journey up north near the Tarsus area to Galatia. So, just it's going to be important moving forward in the book of Acts, uh, this, this city, and I'm going to leave that map up there just so you can refer to it in your own mind during the sermon. So, start with me, if you don't mind, flipping back to chapter 8. I want to read the first few verses, and then we'll read our passage in chapter 11. This is right after the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 8, and this is verses 1 through 3, pre-converted Saul or Paul here. Acts 8, 1, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Now, let's turn to chapter 11. So, you remember the first Gentile was brought in, Cornelius, and now the, the gates are starting, the, the, the doors are opening now to Gentiles being included in the church without converting to Judaism. And here's what we see in Acts 11:19 to the end of the chapter. Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, the island, and Cyrene, North Africa, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So I am going to give a six-point outline today of really marks of a faithful church, and I'm calling this, so the, the church in Antioch was faithful to, that's the key sentence. The church in Antioch was faithful to, and then there's six words. I adapted and altered this outline from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, the, the church in Antioch was faithful to, number one, endure, number two, evangelize, number three, embrace, Number four, enjoy. Number five, edify. And number six, impart. Didn't quite make it with the ease there. We got close. So let me say that one more time. The church in Antioch was faithful to endure, evangelize, embrace, enjoy, edify, and impart. Now, I will tell you, there are a hundred things you could say about a healthy church. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is definitely a good start on the list of what we should look for and how to be, really. That's the real issue, how to be as North Avenue, how to be a faithful church, reflecting the faithfulness of this church in Antioch. And I'll start with number one. The, the church in Antioch was faithful to endure. And I have to admit, I'm cheating on this first point because the church in Antioch actually comes into existence as a result of this first point. You'll see, I hope, what I mean. Let's reread uh, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay, sorry, I got to do one more thing with the pen laser, I forgot. So, uh, Phoenicia is this area right here, uh, which is now called Lebanon, this, this whole region stretching all the way up here. And then you've got Cyprus, the island, and you've got Antioch, the city. So, when it says they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, that's referring to a region, an island, and a city, okay? It's a little bit confusing, but it's all in that same spot up there north in that, in that map. Now, why do I say that they were faithful to endure? Well, you know how this church was birthed? It was birthed through a horrific act of injustice and evil perpetrated against Christians. It's the murder, the martyrdom of a godly man, Stephen, for his 
bold proclamation of faith in Christ against the authorities that be, they got him killed and forced the Christians into an evangelistic mode. They had no choice. They had to leave or else just face imminent death, many of them. And so they, they left. And as they went, left, it was almost like kicking a beehive where you had people going everywhere, but they were, uh, they were passionate about, about preaching Christ. So they endured this evil, this, this persecution. And what does the Lord do through it? He births a church that's going to change world history the church in Antioch. He, he, he births a church that is going to change history uh, because of what's going to happen. So, here's the point. What God does, and He always does this, He gives Satan the exact amount of leash necessary so that Satan hangs himself. That's what happens. So, oh, you want to sell Joseph into, into Egypt? Oh, you want to get him falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? Oh, you want to put him in prison? Oh, you want him to be forgotten in prison when he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and the baker? Okay, just ruin his life. God's going to turn all that against the designs of you meant it for evil, and God is going to mean it for good. Oh, you're, you're, Jesus says now before his death, now is the time. It is the hour of the power of darkness. So, who's got the advantage? Satan has the advantage, right? It's, the, it's his hour. So, Satan fills Judas betrays Jesus, gets the Roman soldiers to arrest him and brutally kill him. Satan has won. Everything has gone Satan's way. And what happens? God gave Satan exactly enough leash to destroy himself. That's what God does. God takes evil and turns it back on itself. And so, God allows in His sovereignty this horrible event. In His sovereignty, God, part of His plan is the martyrdom of Stephen. And Satan maybe is thinking, this is pretty good. I got the upper hand. The church is running scared. Well, not exactly. They're running speaking. They're running and talking. And this is very bad because when you speak the gospel, people tend to get converted by the Spirit. And then what happens is churches get birthed and then you have entire cities are changed, transformed by that thing. And so, the Lord turns this evil against itself. They endure evil and the Lord turns it for good. I just, this quote I heard from a pastor, I don't know who this man is, but a, a pastor in Romania who was being persecuted. This is an extended quote from him. Just listen to what he says. A pastor from Romania who was being persecuted and beaten, he had been arrested and beaten uh, several times. He was under house arrest. He was being interrogated by a guard. This is what he says. During an early interrogation, I had told an officer who had threatened to kill me, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how this works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up again and say, you know, I better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of his told him, we know that that other pastor, so, okay, get, this is another pastor, and this is another interrogator speaking to that pastor, okay, to make that, if that makes sense, and this is what he says, we know that that other pastor would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live, and I'd wanted that so badly that I'd actually wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, 
they were telling me that they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted to go in, in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing that I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. The point here is the Lord loves to turn evil against itself. The supreme example, Christ's crucifixion, but here the martyrdom of Stephen is turned against, and the church was faithful in the midst of the confusion to endure while trusting the Lord. Number two, evangelize. The church at Antioch was faithful to evangelize. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is Greek-speaking non-Jews, a footnote may say in your Bible. These are Greek-speaking non-Jews. They spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They were faithful to evangelize. Now, maybe my favorite aspect of this is the beginning of verse 19 one more time. Now, those who were scattered, that's all we know about them, those who were scattered. These were not the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, which wasn't wrong, I don't think. They stayed in Jerusalem to sort of kind of be at the home base. So, who was it? It wasn't, this isn't Stephen, because Stephen went to Samaria. It wasn't, I mean, excuse me, Philip went to Samaria. Stephen had been martyred. Philip went to Samaria. Well, who was this? Those who were scattered. I, I love this. These are nameless, faithful believers. The, the church in Antioch is not birthed by the heroic apostle Paul, or the heroic apostle Peter, or James, or, you know, any of these well-known figures. The, the church in Antioch was born through the faithful evangelism of nameless believers in the first century. I hope that is just freeing for all of us. You say, I'm never going to write a book that sells a bunch of copies. I'm never going to be well known in my day. Well, listen, we don't even know the names of these believers, but this church at Antioch was born through the faithful proclamation of the gospel by these nameless believers. The Lord knows their names, but we uh, do not. And so, be encouraged by this. Now, a couple things about evangelism. I, I have loved this book, uh, Tactics, by Greg Kokel, K-O-U-K-L, Kokel. Uh, some of you have read this book, Greg Kokel. I recommend it. I think he just wrote a new edition, which I haven't seen yet, but a lot of good stuff on evangelism in that book, a really enjoyable book to read. You should, you should check it out if, if you haven't seen it, Tactics. But one particular tactic that's in the book that I found just sort of simplifying and helpful. He says several things about evangelism. Let me give you just a couple. Number one, one thing he calls it, now this is going to stretch some of your memories, the Columbo tactic. Columbo, the 1980s and 90s, you remember? Uh, Columbo was the detective, you know, with the crumpled jacket, and he's got the stubby little cigar, and he's always walking around, and he comes into the crime scene. If you've never seen Columbo, and he never seems to know what he's talking about, he seems like a bumbling, crazy person. He can't find his pencil. He can't find his pad. He's, you know, just one more question, and he's doing this whole thing. His hair's kind of going crazy, and he drives an old beat-up car, and he talks about his wife, who you never see. Okay, so Columbo, he, he makes a big deal in the book about the Columbo tactic for evangelism, and Columbo's secret weapon was he was actually quietly a genius but he disguised it in being, a, you know, just kind of fumbling around and looking silly and looking like he's not competent at all. So, when he would interview someone after a murderer in a crime scene, the, the murderer is, you know, got, kind of got his guard down. You know, they don't, they don't think he's a threat to them because look at it, this guy can't find his pencil, much less figure out who did this crime. And so, he would talk to them and his secret, his secret weapon was asking questions. 
just relentlessly, almost pestering these people. With, he would say, you know, you said you were here, but you know, what, why was your car at this person's house? Or, you know, why was that, why was that, that window wasn't open last night? Why, why was that window open a week ago? Or, what, you know, th- there was something over here on this mirror that I saw. Why, did someone erase that? Or what happened? There's these little questions. And he, he'll pester you, and he always, he's about to leave the room, and he says, wait, 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 one more thing. And he'll come back, and he'll say, he'll, he'll one more thing until you're, you end up basically admitting that you are the criminal at the end of the day. You end up contradicting yourself, and you're lie, and suddenly he knows it's you, and you're, you've, you've really incriminated yourself. Well, in the book, Greg Kokel says, in evangelism, we need to do a whole lot more listening and a whole lot more asking questions. So, you know, if we were to sit down with, with an unbeliever and talk to them for an hour about their life, we should spend 50 minutes of that time asking them questions and getting to know them. Uh, the, the, who are you? What are you thinking? Why do you believe what you believe? What do you believe? Getting to know them. Why is this good? Number one, does it show that you care about that person? Yes. People really love to be asked questions about what they believe, and so you can ask them questions and you hear them, and the more they talk, the more they reveal their worldview, their foundations, what they really think, what they're foundationally committed to. And over time, the Lord can give you wisdom to begin to know how to best address this particular person and what they believe, and so you ask questions. But then Greg Kogel has another thing that I loved about evangelism. He said, listen, you're not going to realistically lead someone from complete unbelief to faith in Christ in 30 minutes. I mean, it's happened. There's a few stories, but sometimes we so overhype what we're trying to do that we intimidate ourselves and we don't do it at all. Does that make sense? Like, if I don't convert the person in 30 minutes, then it's a failure. I shouldn't have done it. And we get so anxious about trying to finish the deal. You know, it's like, like, no, 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 no. Let's calm down. Take a breath. He says, ask questions. Be a human being. Engage with this as a person. Get to know them. Show interest in them. And then he said, find ways to put a stone in their shoe. Have you all heard this line? I love this line. Put a stone in their shoe. Now, don't you know what he means? In other words, you just, you know, what did you do this weekend? Well, you know, I was just at church and we were, we were thinking about what it means to be, you know, a follower of Christ. And so that was some of the things I was thinking about on Sunday. And you move on. Now, you didn't do a full-scale evangelistic moment there, but you mentioned Jesus in church. Might that get into their thinking? Might they go, oh, this person goes to church, they're pretty serious about their faith, and that might lead to further things down the road. Or you may ask them a question that, that sparks something and leaves some lingering thought in their mind. Now, I don't want to embarrass my wife, and I actually don't remember the specific statement, so I can't even give the exact illustration. But, you know, when we were in the hospital a couple weeks ago with with, uh, Maggie being born, when we were there, I am, by the way, I'm terrible at this as I'm telling you guys what to do. I need to learn how to do this better. But Kelly is just, just can be just bold in these moments. And I'm like, well, go Kelly. So, we get to know know our nurses, our nurses there in in the hospital, and we had some great nurses. And, um, you know, as they come in and out, you know, Kelly's talking to them, and she's always, you know, she's always so friendly, and she has to know these people. She ends up taking pictures with them. She wrote one of the note. I'm like, I've never done something like that in my life. So, she becomes really good friends with them. So, they're talking back and forth, and, you know, Kelly will just mention something about prayer, or she'll just mention something about God passing in the conversation. And, like, I can feel my own blood pressure rise. I'm like, oh, what's about to happen? And it's just Kelly just kind of naturally does it. Now, th- that's the kind of thing I want to get better at. It's just… It's not a full scale leading them to Christ in 30 minutes. It's just putting a stone in their shoe. You mention God, you mention Jesus, you mention prayer, or you mention church, or you say, I'll be praying for you. Just little comments that just can get people thinking. And uh, over time, if 10 Christians 
interact with a person over three years, and all ten of them put a stone in their shoe, over time could that add up? That could really make a difference at the end over time in their life and what, what they're thinking and what they're, what they're believing. So, let's, let's think about evangelism as part of just regular life and engaging people in areas where we are able and thinking about ways we can put stones in people's shoes. I love that line. Okay, number three, uh, the church in Antioch was faithful to embrace, faithful to embrace. Look with me here at verses 22 through 24. The report of this, that is Jews and Gentiles in the church, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Look at 23. When he came he, and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, let's, let's think for a second. Church in Jerusalem is almost only Jewish Christians at this moment. The church in Antioch is probably majority Gentile Christians, but it's a, it's a pretty big mix. This is controversial, remember? And so, what does the church in Jerusalem do? They take Barnabas. Why do they send Barnabas on this situation? Because Barnabas was the encourager. Barnabas tends to see the best in somebody. Uh, he was a decent theologian, but Paul was clearly a superior theologian. We'll see that here in the story. But Barnabas was a wonderful lover of the Lord and a lover of others and an encourager. And so when he gets sent, he comes to this church and he sees, oh my goodness, full-blown Gentiles are everywhere and they love the Lord Jesus. And he is glad. He rejoices in the Lord's work. He's loving what the Lord is doing. And Barnabas creates this unity and he's, well, he at least encourages unity and he exhorts them to remain faithful uh, to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, you may remember Barnabas, you know, came into the story. He was contrasted with the faithful Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lie about what they gave and they are struck dead. Well, right before that, the foil for that is Barnabas who sold land in Cyprus, that island where he owned some land, and he gave it to the apostles. He was doing it out of a genuine heart of love, whereas Ananias and Sapphira were not. Barnabas was generous. He was an encourager. And when he gets to Antioch, he is helping foster and create and help grow the unity in this uh, young church. And Barnabas uh, is doing a tremendous job. Let's look here at number four. The, the church in Antioch is faithful to enjoy. I want to zero in on Barnabas's joy here. When he saw the grace of God, he was glad. He, he, he was enjoying the grace of God. He was celebrating the grace of God. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, spiritually, you have ups, you have downs, you have, you're in the middle, you're all, you know, over, over a year you feel like you go up and down and all over the place. Here, here's an encouragement, exhortation maybe. I don't know where everyone's at, I can't read everyone's heart, but let's just, you, you evaluate yourself. Let's say that you're sort of right now what I call in the no man's land spiritually. So let, let's say that you're not really having a, you know, you're not, spiritually, you don't feel like you're doing really well, but you also don't feel like you're doing horrible. You just kind of feel like you're in the, in the middle, okay? You're, 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 you know, kind of in that spot. You feel a little bit maybe lethargic, a little spiritually lazy, but you don't, you know, you're kind of stuck there in the middle. I would say that that is one of the most miserable places to be. 
And this is an encouragement. I'm not trying to make it you feel bad. I'm just, I want to encourage you. If you feel like you're stuck there, it's almost like you're close enough to the Lord to have your conscience where it's, it's alert, but not close enough to really be walking in the joy of the Lord. And so you're just sort of stuck in this little middle area. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like you've been there some, to turn from that and to run toward the Lord Jesus, to, to run toward Him, to race towards Him and to say, Lord, Get me out of this state of a spiritual laziness and this lethargy. Wake me up. Wake up from the dead, you sleeper, and Christ will shine on you, right? Wake me up from the sleep. Help me to fully walk with the Lord. Help me to, to love your Word, to spend time in your Word, to have regular times with you in prayer. Help me to meet with you and to experience you and help my joy begin to rise again. Because a sign of that, similar to what Scott was talking about, we will begin to see the grace of God and be glad. See, Barnabas had eyes to see the grace of God at work in his fellow believers, and he celebrated it. He was glad about it. He enjoyed it. He, he was finding satisfaction in that. And so, finding that place where the, by the Lord's grace where we are celebrating His work of grace in, in one another's lives and increasing our own joy in Him. All right, number five. I want to spend a moment on this one. Edify. Number five is edify. Look with me at verses 25 through 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. That's a great verse, the first called Christians. Most people do not think, by the way, that they named themselves Christians. That would sound a little presumptuous. Uh, we think that it was the non-Christians in the area who said, oh, these are the people who are obsessed with Christ. They're like little Christ followers. They're little, the followers of Christ. They're obsessed with Christ. So, well, let's just call them the Christians. Let's call them the Christians. They're, the, they're the, the people who are obsessed with Jesus Christ. And so, they probably got the name almost as, a, as an act of mockery. You know, the, the two other times the word Christian appears, the two other spots in the New Testament… One is, is it Agrippa? I forget their names, but uh, I think it's Agrippa, King Agrippa. He says, in a short time, Paul, will you persuade me to become a Christian? It's, it's derision. He's like, you, you're going to make me a Christian? Come on. So, he uses Christian as a, as a, as a put down to Paul as a non-Christian. And then First Peter, I think it's chapter 4, uh, Peter says, let those of you who are persecuted under the name Christian rejoice in that name. So, again, how's the word being used? non-Christians mocking Christians. So, I think it's, it's likely that they were named Christians from non-Christians. By the way, that's happened a lot in church history. I think the Puritans got their names from people who didn't like Puritans. The Methodists got their names from people who didn't like the Methodists. I mean, it's like, it's pretty typical that the name will often be given as a term of derision, and then it's later embraced, but they love the word. We're all about Christ. We're Christ, Christians. That's fantastic. We'll, we'll take it. So, what was going on here with the edifying part? Now, when I say I don't think Barnabas was the same caliber of a theologian as Paul, I mean, who was? Barnabas goes, I've got quite a job on my hands here. Like, I have this brand new church. It's growing. It's, it's, we need a lot of help with discipleship. And Barnabas is thinking, I cannot do this alone. Isn't that humble? I mean, when, when you and I cannot do something, it is wonderful just to say, I need help. It's wonderful. Barnabas says, I need help. So, he travels over 100 miles up to Tarsus, and he goes, I know last we heard eight years ago, we dropped off Saul here. We haven't heard from him. We haven't seen him in, in eight, seven, eight years. Let's go find him. So, he goes up there and finds him, and when he finally locates him, he says, Saul, Paul, I need your help. Saul says, I got we don't know exactly what he was doing, but he's probably involved with, with uh, churches in that area, Syria, in Cilicia. 
around Tarsus? What do you need? Barnabas says, well, we've got this really significant moment at this church in Antioch. Please come. Why do you need me? Well, Paul, I mean, I, I love a good Bible study, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all for it, but Paul, you were trained as a Pharisee, so you know your Old Testament better than anybody, and, and also you've been converted radically to Christ, so you, you know how to deal with the Pharisee type, the, 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 the more legalistic Jewish approach. You also know how to deal with the Gentiles because you grew up in more of a Gentile area. I mean, Paul, you're perfect, and you're, let's be honest, you're pretty sharp uh, theologian, please come. And so he prevails on Paul. Paul moves down to Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas, would you have loved to have been in this church for, the, for a year? Paul and Barnabas are your pastors. Whew. Bible study this week, where is it at? It's at Paul's house. I'll be going to that one. Uh, so they, they show up, and for a year, Paul and Barnabas are co-pastoring this church. Just unbelievable. And they're sitting there teaching for a year. And just let me reread verses 25, 26. These are so good. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught uh, a great many of the people. Now, I don't think this is controversial to, in this church, but... Um, let me talk about how evangelism relates to the Sunday church gathering, okay? And I'm, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 14 a little bit here. You may notice that. So, but, and I know this is kind of a bygone era. This is back to the 80s and 90s. I don't think it's this, this form of seeker-sensitive movement is really a different thing today than it was in the 80s and 90s. But if you remember the seeker-sensitive movement in the, in the 80s and 90s, what that really was, was saying is the, in, the number one only real purpose of a Sunday gathering is evangelism. That's the only purpose. And so everything is going to be turned towards evangelism. And so typically the idea of edifying the believer and, and maturing the believer was put on the back burner, and everything became targeted toward how the non-Christian will perceive the service. Now, what I want to say that's I don't want to say good about that, but what I want to say is there's something good in there in the, in the confusion. The good thing is we should have ser services that are not seeker-sensitive in that sense, but they should be seeker-intelligible. 1 Corinthians 14 says if an unbeliever comes in and everyone's speaking in a foreign language, they're not going to know what's going on. They're going to think you're crazy, and they're going to leave not believing. But if they come in and you're speaking truth they, in a language they understand, it's intelligible, they'll fall on their face and say, God is really in this place. So, you want, you want the services to be intelligible to an unbeliever, welcoming to an unbeliever. You, we want unbelievers present to hear, but the number one purpose of a Sunday gathering is the, it's the glory of God, but through the edification of the saints. That's the number one purpose of the Sunday gathering, is that we corporately come together to encourage each other, to be built up in the Lord, to be taught the Lord, to be confronted in our sin, to grow in our doctrine, to encourage one another, to see each other's faces, to talk to one another, to sing together. I mean, doesn't it just do us good to be back? You know, if you miss church because you're sick or you can't be there for, you know, a week or two and you, you get back and it's just refreshing, it's life-giving. So you come up out of the water and you get oxygen again. It's just, it's good for you. It's good for me. And so what do they do? They are teaching. This is deep discipleship for a year to this giant group of new converts, and they're just pouring Old Testament Scripture on them, and they're talking about Jesus and how He fulfills it, and they are just laying on doctrine uh, for a year. Also, there, there can be a tendency to put doctrine and theology against evangelism, and, and this just should not be. Okay, I don't think this is a problem. In our church, I really don't. But I can't tell you in my life how many times this has happened. It's almost the habit, like it's like a reflex, you know? You hit the kneecap and your leg comes out. It's like, this is the reflex. If you get into like really like an intense theological conversation with a friend, it's inevitable somebody in the room, if it's a room of, you know, a group of people, someone's going to say, 
oh, why are we getting into all this nitpicky stuff? Let's go out there and the world's lost. Let's go save the... It's like, okay, can't we be both and? We should have our doctrine. Our doctrine is, is, you know, we care more about our bank statement than we do about our doctrine sometimes. You know, like if a number's wrong in your banking statement, you're making a phone call. People are like, well, you know, it's not the end of the world. If it's, it's like, well, we care about the things that matter to us. And our doctrine should matter to us. Our Bibles should matter to us. Even levels not of first importance or second importance, third level doctrinal issues, fourth level doctrinal issues still matter. And we, we should be maturing Christians who are growing in our understanding of how to put our Bibles together. Our systematic and biblical theology should be growing. And that's not at the expense of evangelism. That should all be subservient to loving the lost and to caring for the needy and reaching out to those around us. And frankly, I think when non-Christians come into a room and they see Christians who actually are using their brain, it can be a pleasant surprise. I was in the grocery store. This is not good. This just came to my mind. This is a while ago. I was in the grocery store. I don't even remember where. I'm I'm, I'm in the checkout line. And there's a a woman, maybe 50 years old, so I don't know, standing near me. And she I don't know how this happened, but she somehow asked me what I did. And I always hate that question because I'm like, <laughs> I teach. <laughs> so I always get, but I, no, I, said, I said, I teach Bible. And she's like, teach Bible? Like those two words <laughs> bounced around in her head. And she's like, they, they don't go together. Like, like it's almost like a study Bible. Like that's an oxymoron to people. Like study Bible? What are you talking about? So she's like, what do you mean you teach Bible? I was like, yeah, I teach high school Bible. So like, as a course? Like, <laughs> Uh, forgive me. Yes, that's my job. Yes, that's what I do. And, and I mean, I honestly think that she thought it's like it's Aesop's fables. It's like, oh, you got the Noah Ark with the little kid's story, and you got the whole like David and Goliath, and like you got the Jesus, you know, and the, the angel rose the stone away and he's gone. Like, okay, like how much education does it take here to. I'm like, if I, I didn't say this, but I mean, I wanted to say, like, I have never found anything that more challenges me intellectually than the Bible. The, the, the Bible is endless, fascinating, incredible. It's just absolutely astonishing. And the more I study it, the more I want to know, and the more I realize I don't know, and the more I want to grow. And we should be people who love the Bible and love the lost. And we should not pit those two things against each other, and we should not despise someone who's trying to hammer out their eschatology or something. It's not wrong to do that. Uh, we should be people who encourage uh, both strong doctrine and, and evangelism. Well, we must move on. More could be said, but we will move on. Okay, number six, impart. This is a pretty amazing little picture here of this early church. Verses 27 to 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius probably talking the mid-40s, late-40s A.D. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, speaking of those who like to figure out your doctrine, if you're curious, that trip to to Jerusalem is the one described by Paul in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. If you want to go look at that later, Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is Paul's description of the same trip, and Paul gives us some different details that are not here in Acts, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So what is Paul's purpose? What is their purpose in collecting money? Think about this. Back in an agrarian society, you find out that there's about to be a famine. That means not just that we're going to take an economic hit, it means we may not have supper, right? Like Joseph during the seven years of the seven plenty years, the seven lean years. If I'm hearing this from a prophet, there's a famine coming, I'm thinking, 
Let's, let's build a new pantry on the side of the house. Let's make it half the size of the house. We're going to fill it with grain. We're going to fill it with what all we need. We're going to make sure we're okay. The Christians go, wait, what about the even more impoverished Christians living in Judea? Well, it's going to be even worse for them than for us. We should take a collection, and we should give like a, you know, an offering. We should pool our resources, give them as each one is able, and then we should send it to Judea. I mean, what selfless joy that is. I mean, that's just not the way I think. And they're thinking, other Christians are going to be in worse situation than we are. Let's take care of them. And so, as you see the map here, you've got the largely Gentile church up north in Antioch, and you have the largely, almost exclusively Jewish church in Jerusalem. Remember, the, the fracture is between those groups, Jews and Gentiles. So, what does Paul want to do? He says, listen, we need to make sure that we hold unity between the Gentile section of the church, the heavily Gentile part, and the heavily Jewish side, it is going to be racial animosity, theological misunderstanding, the circumcision debate. There's all kinds of reasons why there's going to be a fault line between the, Jew, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. This is going to be the big divide here, and Paul does not want to see the split. He wants to hold unity together. Here's the idea. If we give sacrificially and joyfully to that church, it will show them that we are on the same team. We care about you guys. We love you guys. We are sacrificially going to take care of your needs. And so, Paul is doing this, among other things, to keep the unity between the, the Gentile heavy church and the Jewish heavy church between those two cities. And so, they impart their goods generously. I'm almost at the end of the sermon, but a couple last thoughts. One thing was <clears throat> James Boyce, great minister from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia who died back in the year 2000, prematurely, frankly, of cancer. Uh, in his commentary on Acts, James Boyce said, he said, he, he, now, maybe there's an example in history that we don't know about. I don't know. But he said, I don't know of a single example, maybe there is one, earlier in history where one largely ethnic group in one location freely gave funds to take care of another largely a different ethnic group in a different location just because. Normally, it's like, you know, a war treaty where you're giving goods to try to negotiate peace or something. But no, a largely Gentile church of their own accord raises funds, gives it to a largely Jewish group in a different area 250 miles away because of Jesus. And Boyce says, I can't remember another time in history where something like that had happened. What's happening is the church transcends ethnic division. It transcends socioeconomic division. It transcends location division, right? I grew up here, you grew up there. I grew up in this class, you grew up in that class. I grew up with this skin color, you grew up with that skin color. I grew up believing these things, you grew up believing these things. No, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility is torn down, and there is unity in Jesus that makes even the demons ashamed. Uh, that, that Christ breaks that down through His blood. And the, the closing point here is back to verse 21. How is all this possible? How can the church in Antioch or our church be faithful to endure suffering, evangelize the lost, embrace new believers, enjoy seeing God's grace in others, edify one another with wise and good words, and impart our goods and our time and our money when necessary freely and with joy to others. How can that happen? Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I hope you know as believers, when you look back on your life, think now for a second about your successes spiritually. It could be dangerous to do that for too long, but think back of moments of triumph in your life. 
You, you've gotten some victory over sins that used to haunt you as when you were younger. You've developed godly habits that you wouldn't have dreamed of a decade or two ago. You have priorities right now, not perfectly, but you have rearranged priorities that don't, would not make sense to the pre-converted you. Why? What made you different from how you were before? What do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it as a gift, why do we boast as if it's not a gift? It's because the hand of the Lord, undeservedly, anti-deservedly, was with you. If there's been any change or transformation for the good in your life, that is due to the hand of the Lord intervening in your life and being with you. What do we not owe to the gracious and merciful, the sovereign and intervening hand of the Lord in our lives? Maybe the biggest public example of unity is the Lord's table in the church. Because we, though many, are around one meal, the bread and the cup. This represents our complete unity in Christ. If you are a believer and a member of this church, if you're here as a believer in Christ, you are closer to other saints in this room than you are to your unbelieving relatives. And just think about that. Jesus says, you know, my mother, my brother are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. And so, these elements here, they're not magical and mystical. If you're not a believer, we would ask you actually to refrain from coming forward because what you need is not the elements, but what they re represent, which is Jesus' body broken for you, His blood shed for you. But for believers, this represents publicly our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever differences there might be as far as the world is concerned, those are dwarfed by comparison to the unity that we share in the Lord Jesus. So even now, uh, we will bow our heads. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. And as you are bowing your heads, if you are in a state of unrepentant, willful sin, we would ask you to refrain from the elements. If you are out of fellowship with a believer and you have not sought to make peace with that believer, we would also ask you to refrain from the elements. But if you're a believer and you're walking in repentance by God's grace, by the hand of the Lord, even now, thinking through His forgiveness and His work in your life to change you by His grace and to alter the course of your life by regeneration and conversion, express gratitude to the Lord. And then when I'm done praying, you can come forward uh, when you choose to take the elements and return to your seat. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank You for the work You have done in so many in this room. And I only know a tiny fraction of the stories that are to be told, but what I know is so encouraging. A lot of stories in college of meeting the Lord through the faithful witness of a believer in this room that I've heard. A lot from parents reaching out to younger children and them coming to know the Lord. Some as adults meeting the Lord in their 30s or beyond. Lord, thank You for the tremendous grace that You've shown to those here in this room who know You. And I pray for those who do not yet know You that Your hand would be at work even right now, softening the heart, opening the eyes to the reality of our sin and the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross as an atoning substitute for sinners, and that those who don't know You right now would, in this moment, turn away from the husks and ashes that they've been living for and see the gold, the, the glory, the goodness, the superiority of the Lord Jesus, and that they would embrace Him as Lord, Savior, and the treasure of their life. 
And I pray you'd be with us now as we come forward for these elements. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.